Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And it's your last chance to get more fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this limited-time bundle ends June 30th. Save now at cedarpoint.com. Since it was founded in 1935, the FBI has had only eight Senate-confirmed directors, and those directors all have a few things in common. They are all white men. They all favor a a clean-cut look. And each and every one of them, every Senate-confirmed director since the dawn of the FBI, has been a Republican. That includes current FBI director Christopher Wray, who was appointed by Donald Trump. But you would not get that impression, given the way Director Ray's fellow Republicans attacked him and his agency during a hearing today on Capitol Hill. When the court says the FBI misled, that's a nice way of saying they lied. How many individuals were either FBI uh, employees or people that the FBI had made contact with were in the January 6th uh, entry of the Capitol. Well, I'm going to make the assumption that there was more than one, more than five, more than 10. I will say this notion that somehow the violence at the Capitol on January 6th was part of some operation orchestrated by FBI sources and agents uh, is ludicrous. Your job is to review what they do. Your job is to protect the American people from a tyrannical FBI storming the home of an American family. I could not disagree more with your description of the FBI as tyrannical. You preside over the FBI that has the lowest level of trust in the FBI's history. People trusted the FBI more when J. Edgar Hoover was running the place than when you are. Respectfully, Congressman, in your home state of Florida, the number of people applying to come work for us and devote their lives working for us is over up over 100%. The American people fully understand that there is a two-tier justice system that has been weaponized to persecute people based on their political beliefs and that you have personally been weapon that you have personally worked to weaponize the FBI against conservatives. If I would disagree with your characterization of the FBI and certainly your description of my own approach. Uh, The idea that I'm biased against conservatives uh, seems somewhat insane to me, uh, given my own personal background. Somewhat insane. That is also how Republicans talk about the FBI now, somewhat insanely. And it's not just on Capitol Hill. Conservative media has also gone all in on this theory that the FBI is a weapon of the federal government that will attack conservatives. Here's what coverage of that hearing of Christopher Wray looked like today on Newsmax. Anybody that finds themselves in the crosshairs of of the FBI, and there tend to be people who are politically problematic for the ruling elite. We're talking about multiple, multiple scandals. We're talking about spying on the the American people. We're talking about targeting Catholics, targeting conservatives. No one is happy with the FBI. No one. The reason that Republicans have decided to make the FBI their target, the reason is Donald Trump. The de facto leader of the Republican Party has been indicted by federal prosecutors, and he is facing more potential charges from another federal investigation. And so the former president has chosen to turn his party against the federal law enforcement agency that has traditionally been run and largely staffed by fellow Republicans. 
That campaign has done more than just sour Republican voters on the FBI and so broad distrust in the justice system. It has also put FBI agents in real danger. The Washington Post reported last week that prosecutors who are working on the Trump classified documents case are now facing substantial harassment and threats online and elsewhere. As one extremism expert told The Post, rather than seeing these giant swells of activity, we are seeing a smaller subset of individuals drilling down in a particularly intense way to find individual people to take out their anger on. It's too risky for them to go into the streets right now. Every time they do, even a little bit, there is a huge media frenzy and a huge police presence. Joining us now are Tim Hafey, former lead investigator for the House's January 6th investigation, and Mary McCord, former acting assistant attorney general for national security at the Justice Department and, of course, co-host of the MSNBC podcast, Prosecuting Donald Trump. Tim, I would love to know from a sort of personal perspective, given your intense involvement in, in interviewing witnesses for the January 6th investigation, how safe, how vulnerable did you feel in the course of of those interviews in the course of that investigation? Uh, Alex, uh, the best answer I can give you is that every member of the select committee over the course of our work had to avail themselves of escort protective service from the U.S. Capitol Police. Uh, Adam Kinzinger, a member of the select committee, had an infant child during the investigation and received a really vile threat at his home against his wife and, and that child. And they were literally escorted from wherever they went in Washington by multiple uh, U.S. Capitol Police officers. That is unfortunately what working on these issues has come to. It is despicable and sad uh, and is um, it, something that didn't hamper our work, but it certainly impacted the way we went about it. Yeah, Mary, and I'm, and to to sort of protect the people who are working on these very important cases, for example, the federal prosecutors who are working on the special counsel's probe into January 6th and also the Mar-a-Lago investigation, the Post reports that, you know, the DOJ is trying to keep the names of those officials secret. But of course, their names are part of the discovery process, part of the files that the Trump team is going to be able to look at in the course of these indictments. And we now have the case, again, according to the Post, that far-right Trump supporters are posting the names of the prosecutors and government workers, government workers online. I mean, I guess my question to you would be, how much can we even expect the government to keep people safe in this current landscape? I mean, these are situations, like Tim said, where if there are specific threats, targeted threats toward particular prosecutors, FBI agents, witnesses, uh, that may require some special security precautions, including assigning escorts, potentially even to people's homes and um, potentially even installing security systems if they don't have those things. I mean, the government, if we expect our government employees, prosecutors, FBI agents to do jobs that put them at risk, then the government has a responsibility to try to mitigate that risk for witnesses all the more so. And I think that's, you know, one reason why we have the protective order here, whereby the government provided a list of witnesses to the defense, but on the, um, you know, on the condition as ordered by the court as, as one of the 
conditions of Mr. Trump's release that those witnesses' names be protected and and not be um, distributed publicly. So, but you're right. You can only take so many precautions. There is risk inherent in this. And I think I maybe have mentioned uh, when I've been on with you before, you know, I, Tim and I were both prosecutors for years and sometimes we would have threats against us. But prosecutors are fungible. If you, if you get rid of one of us, there's another going to take our place. And many people uh, who are accused of crimes understand that. Extremists, it's a completely different ballgame. They don't seem to care about that. They ju- you know, the extremist threats and the rhetoric and sometimes the actual attacks uh, don't factor into the account that that won't get rid of the problem. Yeah. Can I follow up on that, too? Because I think in the wake of some of these indictments, whether it's Alvin Bragg or whether it's the Mar-a-Lago case, there's been a sense of perhaps that the danger has been neutralized because there hasn't been an outpouring. There hasn't been another January 6th style insurrection in front of the courthouse, for example. But I, I really that 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 line in The Washington Post reporting that the, the nature of the threat is now different, that it's a smaller subset of individuals drilling down in a particularly intense way to find individual people to take their anger out on. That really stood out to me. And I'm wondering, Mary, given your national security background, if you might expand on that a little bit. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, there's two points I'd make. One is that's sort of part of the of the strategy of extremists right now, right? Like, let's eschew these big national things that will get us all arrested, like an attack on the U.S. Capitol, and let's get more decentralized and localized with our extremism, including targeting people for retribution. Um, and the second thing I'd say is this is what is so hard to protect against, right? Because, I mean, I myself, and I, and I know Tim, you know, I've been subject to plenty of online threats. And the question is, when is that online threat just a bunch of bravado and braggadocio and, you know, looking tough, like, let's say these really mean things about this woman? or And when is it somebody who's actually going to get in their car and going to track you down and try to actually harm you? And, you know, it's just like the issue with lone wolf terrorists, right? They're usually not part of a big group activity. They oftentimes act on their own, but they act on their own very much inspired by and incited by disinformation and and what now is so popular, which is victimhood. I mean, the very idea of a weaponization subcommittee is because they're saying the government's being weaponized against people and those people are the victims. And victimhood gives rise to people feeling like they can engage in acts of uh, political violence that, that those will be justified. And who's going to engage in those acts? That's the real thing that's difficult for our law enforcement. I just still think it, it's worth unpacking, Tim, what happened on the Hill today in this assertion that the FBI is a readout of liberals' intent on targeting conservatives. It bears mentioning that FBI Director Chris Ray is a member of the Federalist Society who clerked for Michael Ludig. He is a dyed-in-the-wool conservative. And I'd love your sort of assessment about how deep the deep state may be in the trenches of of, of liberalism, given, you know, the, the, the claims that were made on Capitol Hill today. Yeah. Uh, as Chris Ray himself said, Alex, repeatedly today, the narrative that the FBI is somehow full of liberal deep state anti-Trump, anti-conservatives is ludicrous. Chris Ray is a pro. I disagree with Chris probably on a lot of issues, but I respect his integrity, as I do all of the men and women in the FBI who in my experience as a former prosecutor, go about their very important work with a great deal of integrity. 
They do, though, sometimes make mistakes. And the tragedy of a hearing like today is that we're spending all of this time on these ludicrous issues of political theater. And we're not talking about real issues like how the FBI gathers information about domestic violent extremism. Do they efficiently share information with others? Do they put undue restrictions, First Amendment restrictions, free association restrictions on their ability to monitor open source information? Or or is there an assessment of danger when it comes to intelligence afflicted with some implicit racial bias? These are huge issues that our work, I think, identified. None of them absolve the former president and his co-conspirators who caused the riot. But those conditions of, of law enforcement and how the FBI and other agencies prepare for and manage these events really deserve attention. And we're not talking about that because we're going through this charade of the FBI has somehow been weaponized or as part of the deep state. That, as Christopher Ray said, is ludicrous, and it prevents real discussion about important issues. Well, and I would also say not only is it missing the point, it may be even slightly more malignant than that, which is the, the few former, you know, the, the few former people who have been from law enforcement who have been charged in January 6th aren't there as liberal like Democrat plants. They are there as actors working in support of Trump <clears throat> and his ends. I think Jared Wise, former FBI bureau supervisor, charged in January 6th. Mark Ibrahim, an active duty DEA agent at the time of his arrest. Thomas Caldwell, who claims he's a former section chief for the FBI. I mean, these people were working in law enforcement and they were rioting on January 6th. And my question to you, Tim, and and then also to you, Mary, is to what degree is the department aware of, of the bad actors within its ranks who may be furthering the causes of the former president? Yeah, uh, Alex, there's no question that there were some current and former members of law enforcement in the crowd who believed that the election had been stolen, who believed that false narrative. But it is completely ridiculous to suggest that the FBI in any way instigated, caused, um, somehow motivated the riot. We looked very hard for evidence of that and found absolutely none, as Director Ray said today. I think law enforcement does need to get serious about extremism in its ranks and as a recruiting matter and as a training matter, ensure that they're doing all they can to ensure that the men and women that they bring in are not bringing some warped ideology into their very important responsibility. I I think they get that and are on that. Uh, But this notion that they are either part of the deep state helping liberals um, or were somehow instigating the riot as a false flag operation is not based in fact whatsoever. Mary, are we getting better at policing extremism within the ranks of our own law enforcement agencies? Well, we're certainly calling attention to it. um, And I think certain uh, law enforcement departments are getting better about it. I mean, one of the things that I've been, you know, trying to spread the word on as much as possible over the last couple of years is that, yes, uh, Police officers have First Amendment rights, but those rights are not limitless. And even when they're speaking in their personal capacity about matters of public concern, if their speech or their activity or their association undermines the mission of the of the police department, the law enforcement agency that they're members of, they can be disciplined, included, including firing. The courts have been very clear about that for decades. So I think sometimes law enforcement hides behind the First Amendment as a reason not to take action against extremism. And that's just wrong as a matter of law. There's substantial leeway there, just as there is in the military. And yet what we're seeing now is even in 
admirable efforts in the military to crack down on this. You're now actually seeing uh, attachments to the National Defense Authorization Act, which is something, you know, critical piece of legislation that will need to be passed this year. We're seeing amendments to that to try to dismantle those efforts within the military to eradicate extremism. So for every step forward, it seems like there's folks on Capitol Hill that want to take a few steps backward. Well, yeah, I mean, and a lot of them Republicans, right? The very people who have committees dedicated to the weaponization of the federal government. The irony is is too thick to slice. Tim Hafey, Mary McCord, thanks so much for your time tonight. Thanks, Alex. Speaking of the Donald Trump and the weaponization of the federal government, we have explosive new reporting about what the former president allegedly wanted government agencies to do to his perceived enemies. That is coming up next. Plus, a cautionary tale for Republicans who work to undermine Americans' faith in elections. And I am not just talking about pillow sales. Stick around for that. NetCredit is here to say yes to a personal loan or line of credit when other lenders say no. Apply in minutes and get a decision as soon as the same day. Loans offered by NetCredit or lending partner banks and serviced by NetCredit. Application subject to review and approval. Learn more at netcredit.com slash partner. NetCredit. Credit to the people. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And it's your last chance to get more fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this limited-time bundle ends June 30th. Save now at cedarpoint.com. This is a love story. Lisa, I love you so much. Lisa, please, Lisa. Lisa, please, tell me you love me, Lisa. I love you. (laughs) Peter, I love you. I love you like I've never loved anyone. That was President Donald Trump in 2019. And despite how it may seem, Mr. Trump was not workshopping a one-man play. He was making fun of these two FBI agents, Peter Strzok and Lisa Page, who had worked on the investigation into the Trump campaign's ties to Russia. For taking part in that investigation, both Strzok and Page were frequent targets of Republican attacks and conspiracy theories and also weird kissy noises from the then president. They both ultimately left the Department of Justice. Peter Strzok was actually fired. And so they both sued the DOJ in a civil suit, alleging that their privacy was violated when the department released text messages between them, the ones Trump was bizarrely pantomiming at his rallies. Strzok is also claiming that he was improperly fired. Well, now something has come out of that lawsuit that is a lot more troubling than Trump's puppetless puppet show. John Kelly, Donald Trump's former chief of staff, has given new testimony in that lawsuit He said in a sworn statement that Donald Trump, while he was president, discussed having the IRS and other federal agencies investigate Lisa Page and Peter Strzok as retaliation for their work on the Russia investigation. In other words, Trump allegedly tried to use the power of the federal government to punish his political enemies. And The New York Times has some additional reporting that it did not stop with those two FBI agents. Quote, Mr. Trump had at times discussed using the IRS and the Justice Department to target others, including Hillary Clinton, Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos, and former CIA director John Brennan. 
Joining us now is John Brennan, who is both the former CIA director and in this apparent club of people targeted by the former president. Director Brennan, thanks for being here this evening. Um, I, for those who've forgotten the way in which you have very plainly um, uh, vol- volubly been critical of the former president, I will read one of your choice tweets from, I believe this is March of 2018, addressed to the the president at the time, when the full extent of your venality, moral turpitude, and political corruption becomes known, you will take your rightful place as a disgraced demagogue in the dustbin of history. No one tweets like John Brennan. Um, Director, it is reportedly this kind of, um, these kind of statements that drew the ire of of President Trump and, and basically put you on a retaliation list. Can you talk about what it was like to be targeted by the president of the United States? Well, since that time, I have been the uh, target of uh, many of the uh, the Trump army in terms of their uh, animosity, their hatred, and even their death threats. Um, but it's clear that Donald Trump will go to any extent possible to use whatever opportunity he has to be able to carry out these vendettas against those he believed have harmed him, such as Peter Strzok, Lisa Page, and others. And therefore, it's, I shudder to think that if Donald Trump were to get back into office, what he would do with those institutions of governance, those powerful organizations and the laws of this country, which he has so manipulated and distorted in order to advance his own personal agenda. And so uh, when I think about, you know, the, what Donald Trump has done uh, to the tenets of this great democracy, this, this great country of ours, it really, I think, just demonstrates uh, the depth to which he will go in order to do anything to hurt, harm, and I think put at great risk those who have the audacity to speak out against them. Yeah, and I would love if you could talk a little bit more about the guardrails themselves. I mean, we know about this literal weaponizing of the federal government, in this case, for example, the in some cases, the IRS or the DOJ and its hiring and firing practices because of John Kelly and his testimony under oath. And I, I wonder the degree to which you think those guardrails hold if Trump is reelected another four years. He is, of course, running for president. You intimated just now that you're concerned about it. I mean, institutionally speaking, can the center hold? That's a good question. Uh, John Kelly, who is a very close former colleague of mine, as well as a close friend, uh, he went, decided to do that job of chief of staff in the White House, knowing that it was going to be difficult because he wanted to make sure that at least somebody was going to try to protect this country from any of the abuses that Donald Trump might engage in. And so I have no doubt whatsoever that the things that John Kelly has said in these statements, as well as many other things that Trump was uh, expecting or planning to do or um, trying to do. Uh, and if you don't have people like John Kelly, if you don't have people in the, the positions that are going to prevent the abuse of power by presidents and others, this is something that I think is really going to just tear this country apart. We already are deeply polarized. But again, if we have someone like a Donald Trump who put, who is the one who's going to select the attorney general, uh, probably going to fire Chris Ray, Chris Ray, who has been just doing a tremendous job, in my view, uh, to try to avoid the partisan and political waters that he is, uh, you know, finds himself involved in. And so therefore, I just I really am concerned that Donald Trump, again, who has a a very well-deserved reputation of being vindictive and using any type of tactic or ploy uh, that is of questionable ethical and even legal uh, basis uh, to, again, to hurt his enemies. You know, I, I wonder if there is a troublesome 
sort of the, the, through, the through the looking glass aspect to the Republican war against the weaponization of the federal government, right, is like the, the best gaslight ever, when in fact, it, it seems like, based on the evidence we have, it's Republicans and conservatives who have been weaponizing the federal government. But once you say the phrase enough, whether you're on the left or the right, my concern is the phrase itself becomes meaningless and you lose the importance of the evidence that backs it up, right? I mean, Republicans on House subcommittees can talk about the weaponization of the federal government all they, until they're blue in the face. Without any evidence, it's meaningless. But my worry is, say it enough that it then becomes meaningless even when you do have evidence, as we do in this instance with Donald Trump and Lisa Page and Peter Strzok. Does that concern you at all, that the gaslighting may be effective in the end? Well, unfortunately, I think it is uh, uh, affecting the, the attitudes and the sentiments of many Americans. Uh, watching that uh, testimony today by Chris Ray and those questions that were being lobbed at him from the Republicans, it was clear that they had several uh, objectives. One was to pollute the information environment so they can put out these mischaracterizations, these distortions, these lies in order for them to be replayed on the various right-wing networks as well as for their own re-election purposes. Secondly, I think they're trying to discredit the investigations that are underway to really look into what Donald Trump did while he was in office and also after he has been in office. And third, I think he's trying to intimidate Chris Ray and the FBI to try to prevent them from actually doing their work, investigating these leads is appropriate. And the fact that the Republicans are doing this, it really is just so surreal because the Republicans for so many years were known as the law and order party, the ones that were defending the law enforcement officers, the FBI, the intelligence professionals and others. And now the tables really have been turned. And it's the Democrats who are coming to the aid and to the rescue of the FBI and the intelligence community as a way to protect these institutions so that they're able to do their work despite the fact that they are being so roundly condemned unfairly by these Republican members of Congress who only have their own very hyper-partisan agendas at their, uh, as their goal. Yeah. I mean, my concern is that institutional integrity has to be bipartisan, right? I mean, it is good that Democrats are trying to rush in and preserve these important institutions of democracy. But if it, that in and of, that in and of itself is a problem for, for the country, right? It has to appear that Republicans believe in them too. And yet it has become a plank in the Republican party platform to sow distrust in institutions in the government. I mean, how much hope do you have that there are efforts that can even be taken to mitigate this given this absolute silence, the deafening silence at best from the crop of presidential candidates who are now running to lead the nation and of course the Republican party? Yeah, well, the trends are not good. And as you say, it needs to be bipartisan. And national security and law enforcement and law and order, these always had been traditionally very strong bipartisan issues so that both sides of the aisle would come together. But when I see how these Republicans, again, are misrepresenting the facts and the truth and really trying to tear down these institutions that we as American citizens rely on, I really am hoping that we're going to find some way to be able to get past this very, very difficult period of American history and put Donald Trump and others like him behind in the rearview mirror and move forward. But it's going to take some very strong, uh, independent-minded and courageous Republicans, both in the Senate and the House, to be able to say this is wrong. Sometimes they stand up and say it, but then they forget it right away. So they need to have a sustained effort to try to make sure that they pursue these very strong interests in the United States in a bipartisan fashion with their Democratic colleagues in a way to make sure we preserve these institutions that, again, keep us strong 
not only internally, but keep us strong uh, from uh, external adversaries. Former CIA Director John Brennan, the only person I know of at, at, at this moment who has used the word cacistocracy in a tweet and made it so deeply meaningful. Thank you, sir, for your time tonight. Still to come this evening, Iowa's new six-week abortion ban is going to put some Republican presidential hopefuls in a very public political bind. Plus, election denialism has consequences. Just ask the MyPillow guy. We're going to explain that coming up next. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And it's your last chance to get more fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this limited-time bundle ends June 30th. Save now at cedarpoint.com. Are you struggling to lower your bad LDL cholesterol, even though you may be taking a statin, swapping steaks for salads, and exercising while listening to this podcast? Ask your doctor if Repatha Evolocumab is right for you. With Repatha, you can dramatically reduce bad cholesterol and the risk of another heart attack while enjoying life, too, because you're human. And with convenient self-administration, you can take Repatha in the comfort of your own home. Do not take Repatha if you're allergic to it. Repatha can cause serious allergic reactions. Signs include trouble breathing or swallowing, or swelling of the face. Most common side effects include runny nose, sore throat, common cold symptoms, flu or flu-like symptoms, back pain, high blood sugar and redness, pain, or bruising at the injection site. Visit Rapatha.com or call 1-844-RAPATHA. Talk to your doctor today about Rapatha. For the low, low price of five American dollars, this thing could be yours. It is an industrial pillow roller. It rolls pillows. But it's not just any industrial pillow roller. It's a MyPillow pillow roller from the MyPillow Pillow Factory. MyPillow is auctioning off more than 850 pieces of equipment from sewing machines to forklifts. The company is even subletting part of its manufacturing space. Why? Because my pillow is not everyone's pillow, or even a lot of people's pillow, or so it seems. After January 6th, big box stores like Bed Bath & Beyond and Kohl's stopped selling my pillow products. And then last year, my pillow's biggest distributor, Walmart, Walmart dropped my pillow too. It turns out that having a CEO who is both the face of your brand and the face of conspiratorial election denialism is bad for business. MyPillow CEO Mike Lindell says that after those retailers dropped MyPillow, the company's annual sales fell by $100 million. And that's just sales. Don't forget that Mike Lindell's lies about the 2020 election mean that he and the company MyPillow itself are facing a $1.3 billion, with a B, billion-dollar defamation lawsuit from the voting machine company that Mike Lindell lied so much about. Now, as much as Mr. Lindell is getting his comeuppance here, no group is perhaps feeling the hurt from its own 2020 election lies quite as much as the Republican Party. In 2018, 54% of Republicans said they were confident that votes in elections would be counted accurately. 
New polling shows that now only 22 percent of Republicans have confidence that votes will be counted accurately. Twenty two percent. By contrast, Democrats have become more confident about elections in that time. Between 2018 and now, of course, the de facto leader of the Republican Party, Donald Trump, has pushed the big lie that the 2020 election was stolen. In particular, Trump repeatedly demonized mail-in ballots as a source of fraud. But Trump did not do this all single-handedly. Do you remember Virginia Republican Glenn Youngkin's race for governor in 2021? Mr. Youngkin had to walk a fine line on election fraud. He didn't endorse conspiracy theories, but he also didn't debunk them. He was unwilling to say whether Joe Biden had been fairly elected until after he won his primary. Youngkin couldn't risk alienating the huge chunk of the Republican electorate that still believes American elections are rigged. But it turns out that having an electorate that doesn't believe that voting works is a bad thing. This week, Governor Youngkin launched a new messaging campaign attempting to convince Republicans that early voting and mail-in voting actually might not be the end of democracy after all. Governor Youngkin is not the only Republican now in this position. In a big new national push this year, the RNC is desperately trying to get Republicans to bank their vote, which is shorthand for vote early or by mail. Even the election-denying Arizona gubernatorial candidate Carrie Lake, who to this day has not conceded the 2022 election, even she has realized that telling people voting isn't secure is not the best way to win votes. So Carrie Lake has launched what she calls the largest ballot-chasing operation in American history, which, you guessed it, means helping people cast their ballots early or by mail. Republicans casting doubt on voting itself is one of the biggest self-inflicted wounds in the history of our democracy. It is unclear how the party is going to clean up this mess, but if they need an industrial floor scrubber, I know a guy. Up next, Republicans are digging themselves into yet another hole on yet another issue just ahead of another election. Claire McCaskill joins me. Stay tuned. Those voting aye, 32, nay, 17. The bill, the bill, having received the constitutional majority, is declared to have passed the Senate and the title was agreed to. The chair recognizes the senator from Polk, Senator Whitford. Those were protesters in the Iowa Senate chamber late last night voicing their disapproval a few moments after lawmakers passed a six-week abortion ban in a marathon 14-hour special session. The bill includes exceptions for the health of the woman and for certain pregnancies resulting from rape or incest. Today, groups including local chapters of the ACLU and Planned Parenthood filed a lawsuit to temporarily block that ban as the courts determine whether it is constitutional. Even still, Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds plans to sign this newly passed bill into law on Friday afternoon. This Republican governor does not want to sign her six-week abortion ban behind closed doors in the dead of night, like, for example, Governor Ron DeSantis, who announced he had signed his ban in April shortly before midnight and with no media in the room. Instead, Governor Reynolds wants to sign it here at the very public family leadership summit. And because her state is the first nominating contest in the Republican presidential cycle, the governor will have quite an audience. Six Republican candidates are slated to be there, excluding, notably, I'll add, former President Donald Trump. 
Ron DeSantis, Mike Pence, Tim Scott, Vivek Ramaswamy, Nikki Haley and Asa Hutchinson have all signed up to attend this Family Life Summit. And whether they like it or not, three of those candidates will take the stage in the afternoon session, which now features the signing of a six week abortion ban as its opening act. Joining us now is Claire McCaskill, former Democratic senator from Missouri. Claire, thank you so much for joining me. And I would love for you to weigh in on the absolute awkwardness of Governor DeSantis and Nikki Haley now having to share the same zip code with a six-week abortion ban. Well, it's interesting. Uh, DeSantis is running for president, so he wanted to hide the fact that he signed this bill. Uh, I'm not sure what the governor of Iowa thinks she's accomplishing by this, but it certainly isn't speaking to most of America or even most of Iowa, Alex. Uh, 61% of Iowans. This was a poll by the Des Moines Register, which is nationally recognized as a very accurate pollster. And just recently, they polled and 61% of Iowans said they wanted abortions to be legal most of the time, safe and legal. 70% of Iowa women say they want abortions to be safe and legal in most instances. Only some 30-some percent said they wanted it to be illegal in all circumstances. So she's not representing her state. She is playing to the far-right crowd that has a firm grip on the Republican Party right now. And it is that part of the party that these six presidential candidates are going to be catering to on Friday afternoon. But it's it's almost like she didn't get the memo that you're supposed to sign the six week abortion ban behind closed doors <laughs> at midnight. You know, like the reality that this is just absolutely abysmal politics on the national stage. Once if you get out of the, the mud fight that is the Republican primary, the polling on this isn't even a question. And therefore, Republicans are making, I think, a craven calculation that they can do all of these things behind closed doors in primary season and that the public is somehow going to forget about them when it comes to the general. And I wonder, you know, Claire, put on your pessimistic hat or your, your um, you know, your disillusioned hat, if you would, for a minute. And is do you think there's any truth to that? Do you think you can get away with something like what Ron DeSantis is doing, which is sign it behind closed doors, sort of pretend like it didn't happen, and then hope that placates the base enough to get you through the primary and then never speak of it again once you're the general election candidate? Well, first of all, I don't think that's going to work in this instance because women. Um, this feels personal to women. The Supreme Court has taken away a right that women have counted on for 50 years. Women do not want the government telling them what to do with their own bodies and in their relationships with their families, with their own faith. The government doesn't have a primary role in that instance. And women aren't going to forget this. I remember being on Meet the Press after the Dobbs decision. And I remember the Republican panelist said, said counted a poll that said, well, you know, everyone's talking about this abortion decision, but people really aren't paying attention to it. It won't matter in the midterms. And I remember Yamish Alcindor and I looking at each other across the table going, he's wrong. He doesn't understand that women care about this. They understand it. And women understand that many times you don't even know you're pregnant at six weeks. It is just the same as the Missouri law, which makes it illegal to have abortion in all instances from the moment of conception. 
You know, I think it's notable that Donald Trump, who is so far sort of the only person who's raised a red flag around the abortion issue being maybe possibly terrible for Republicans in an election, is not going to be at this summit. Ron DeSantis is the unlucky guy, again, along with Nikki Haley, who gets to be in the afternoon session when this is signed, which coupled with his general strategy on abortion and bodily autonomy, gives rise to the latest reporting on Ron DeSantis that I'd love to get your thoughts on, Claire, which is that even Rupert Murdoch now has his doubts about Ron DeSantis. Uh, Mr. Murdoch, this is reported in The New York Times, has privately told people that he would like to see Governor Glenn Youngkin of Virginia enter the race. I get I get why this uh, DeSantis campaign is not uh, ringing true for a lot of Republicans, including Rupert Murdoch. But the question is, it's, do you think it's just delusional for them to believe that anybody but Trump is going to be the nominee? Or do you think there's still uh, is the garage door not yet down on that? Well, I think this is really one of the big problems they have. They all know that if they can beat Trump in Iowa, that it shakes the premise that he is unbeatable. And in Iowa, the vast majority of the Republican voters that participate in their caucuses are white evangelical voters that are in line with the six-week abortion ban. So now this has become a litmus test for all those candidates whose only hope of getting a win in the primary is to win in Iowa. And that's why it's interesting that Trump's not showing up. Trump had a hard time there. He didn't win in 16 and frankly had to run around the state with um, uh, Jerry Falwell to try to drum up conservative evangelical support, even in 2020, to try to, you know, do better than he had in the past. So I think it's one of those things that they are hoping this issue will sink Trump in Iowa and then they'll have a chance. But the irony is they're going to sink all of them because women aren't going to forget this. Women aren't going to forget, Alex. (laughs) The governor's going to make sure of that as well. The great Claire McCaskill, thank you for your time tonight, Claire. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Alex. And this quick programming note is going to be a big night here at 30 Rock tomorrow. A circus, one might say, when all three of my former co-hosts from Showtime's The Circus, that would be John Heilman, Mark McKinnon, and Jen Palmieri, will join me to talk about all things 2024. There will be a lot to discuss. That's tomorrow night right here on MSNBC. But first, Hollywood is holding its breath as actors threaten to join the writers on strike for the first time since 1960. What is on the line there and which major political figure, that's a hint, led them during the last strike? That's next. Tonight, just hours after nominations were announced for the 75th Emmy Awards, the machinery of Hollywood may be coming to a grinding halt. The union representing 160,000 TV, film and radio actors is threatening to go on strike at the stroke of midnight Pacific midnight Pacific time tonight if contract talks with the major studios fail. If negotiators do not reach a deal, the result would be a double whammy of historic proportions. Actors would join Hollywood writers who have already been on strike for the past 10 weeks. The last time anything like this happened, that both actors and writers went on strike at the very same time, the last time this happened was 63 years ago. 
and leading those very tense negotiations in March and April of 1960 was a B-list actor who you might have heard of. His name was Ronald Reagan. And you can see him in this photo standing second from the right, right next to Charlton Heston. Reagan was then serving his second stint as president of the Screen Actors Guild, known as SAG. And in that role, he had just helped spearhead the end of a joint SAG strike with the Writers Guild of America against seven major film studios. That is correct. Two decades before he ushered in the modern era of conservatism, rooted in the idea of small government and slashing the social safety net and diminishing the power of organized labor. Two decades before that, Ronald Reagan led the actor union Actors Union through bitter negotiations, ones that ultimately secured investment dollars for a new union health insurance plan, a pension plan, and residuals for films produced after 1960. That was Ronald Reagan's handiwork. And today, residuals are once again at the core of the demands of the Actors Union. They're asking to be compensated for their work appearing on streaming services. And they're also demanding safeguards from artificial intelligence, as well as better compensation and better working conditions and better benefits. Right now, production is already shut down on Abbott Elementary and Yellow Jackets and Stranger Things because of the writer strike. And we're going to find out in a few hours if even more shows have to stop production and whether this really might just be the summer of strikes. That's our show for tonight. We'll see you tomorrow. What kind of fun is waiting for you at King's Island? The holy cow, we're way too high and here comes the drop kind of fun. The make a splash all summer kind of fun. The I can't believe I ate that whole funnel cake. Let's get another kind of fun. But most importantly, at King's Island, you'll find for the fun of it kind of fun. Don't wait to start your fun this season. King's Island is now open weekends.